Well, tonight we continue with the second part of this series that I began last week on the subject of the kingdom of God. And for those of you who weren't here, you might like to um, listen to that. It's quite important to understand the background as we get into this next stage. And uh, that is on the website. You can listen to the MP3. You can watch it on video. And um, I'd encourage you to do that if you really want to understand what we're talking about here. When Jesus arrived announcing that the time has come and the kingdom of God is here or is near, he spoke into a context. He spoke into the context of the Old Testament expectation. The people of Israel in first century Israel were waiting for the time to come, were waiting for the kingdom of God to break in. And we looked last week at that whole expectation, the prophetic expectation of what that would mean. Um, the kingdom, the kingdom of God, uh, is not like any other sort of kingdom in terms of a geographical kingdom. When we think of kingdoms, we think of kings ruling geographical areas on a map. So the United Kingdom is a you know, defined area. The kingdom of God is basically where God's will is done. That is where his kingdom is expressed. Where he is seen to be ruling, his nature is expressed, that is the kingdom of God right there. Last week we saw, for instance, as God overruled the gods of Egypt and set his people free, the expression of his rulership and his sovereignty. As we saw David and Solomon ruling over their enemies and uh, shalom being experienced, peace on all sides and enjoying the blessing of being under God's rule. And so God is king. God reigns. He is on the throne. He reigns over the whole universe. But his kingdom is evidently not expressed fully in this world. We are to pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And clearly it's not. It's not done on earth as it is in heaven. We live in a world where there is sickness and there is pain and there is death all around us. Now tonight's talk will be again one which you might call content rich. And it will take a certain amount of biblical knowledge and concentration to get the very best out of it. But if you're not familiar with the Bible, don't worry. Just ignore those bits that sound confusing. And I trust that you'll benefit from those parts which are more easy to uh, comprehend. With Jesus' arrival on the scene, the future inbreaking of the kingdom of God arrived. But as we saw last week, it didn't look like what the Jews were expecting. Not everything that was prophesied seem to be getting fulfilled. And so there is this mystery, and that's where we finished last week. There's a mystery about the kingdom of God. Has the kingdom come in Jesus? Is there more to come? And how do we begin to understand that? In the words of Jesus recorded in the Gospels, we find at least four strands of teaching, each of which has numerous texts that one could uh, quote for that I'm not going to for the sake of time. But first of all, many of his statements view the kingdom and the coming of the kingdom of God as a future event. It is an end of the world event, what scholars call an eschatological event. The kingdom will come at the end of history. And leading up to that point, there are things that will happen like the destruction of the temple and um, nation will rise against nation. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be false prophets. There will be false Christs. And then a long period of tribulation and then the Son of Man will appear in the heavens. It'll be the day of judgment, and he will judge everybody who has ever lived. And obviously, Jesus is referring to something way off in the future. 
to him at that time. And similarly, as we read through the book of Revelation, there are a series of bowls and a series of trumpets, all leading up to a point at the end of history. And then there are those texts that say, as Jesus speaks, he's saying the kingdom of God is right here, right now. It's here. In fact, the turning point of history is taking place. We're no longer living, he's saying, in the time of expectation of a future event, but we are living in the time when the kingdom of God has broken in and is now present. And so Luke 11, verse 20, for instance, he says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So it's future, way off in the future. It is now. And then there are a whole lot of passages where he doesn't say that it's present, but that it is near. It is at hand. Like we saw last week, Jesus burst onto the scene with this announcement, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. And the word that he uses for near there conjures up the idea of a great storm which has been building up and building up and at any minute, the skies will open and the rain will come down. But it's not just yet. It's the image of a woman in labor pains. The baby is just about born It is being born, but it is not born yet. And history is pregnant with the any minute arrival of the kingdom of God. Linked to that are statements where he says it will come in this generation. He says, some of you standing here will not die before you see the kingdom come. And so there's this, it's not yet, but it's very soon going to happen. And then fourthly, there are those passages, including a load of parables, which tell us that the kingdom of God has been delayed. Why did the foolish virgins run out of oil? Because they were waiting for the bridegroom to come and he had been delayed. And the coming of the bridegroom in Jewish literature is a metaphor for the coming of the one they were awaiting who would bring in the kingdom, the Messiah. Jesus told the parable of a nobleman who gives talents to his servants and then he goes away for a long time and is delayed and then eventually he returns. And Luke tells us that he did so, he told this parable, Because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And the parable is basically saying, no, it it has been delayed. And so we have these four strands in Jesus' teaching. The kingdom is coming in the future, at the end of history, way ahead of his own time. It is present within him right now. It is near, or it is in that generation, and that it has been delayed. And if that's confusing to you, welcome to the mystery. That is, herein lies the mystery, is how the kingdom of God actually uh, clearly comes. Only by grasping that somehow all of this is simultaneously true can we understand the kingdom of God. It always has this mysterious nature within it, that the kingdom of God is always present, it is near, it is delayed, and it is future. The writer of the New Testament And many theologians since have spent a lot of time trying to sort of provide language to encapsulate this. And uh, I'm going to give you some of those phrases in a moment. But just to give you the framework for this, it's helpful to see history as a timeline. Okay, redemptive history, which is essentially man, God's dealing with man, begins with creation, creation of mankind at some point. There's the point that Jesus comes, going through to the end the end of history, the day of judgment, beyond which there's a new heaven and a new earth and all the things that Isaiah prophesied and so on we saw last week, that's when that all fully will be consummated and will happen. And uh, what this teaching of Jesus is showing is that something 
no Old Testament prophet expected took place in Jesus. Something amazing, something supernatural, unimaginable happened. Suddenly, the power of the future age broke from the future into the present in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And in his ministry and the various other high points of his life that we'll look at today, the powers of the coming age, the things that will occur at the end of history, somehow arrive from the future into the present in Jesus. And we have breakthrough. Breakthrough, I waved at you a black book last week. It's the same book. It's just been republished. It's now as a white cover. Uh, if any of you like a good thick book to read, it's, it's a bit more uh, in-depth at what I'm doing here as I sweep through Derek Morphew's material. Uh, but it's available on the bookstore if you'd like to buy that. We have the powers of the end of the age, God's future world, breaking through unexpectedly into this age. And we see in his ministry, first of all, we see him demonstrating the inbreaking of the kingdom in his rule over basically whatever he went near. His rule over sickness and over death and over nature and over the powers of evil. You know, he would speak a word and a blind person would see and a deaf person would hear and a dead person came back to life. The storm was stilled. Vast amounts of bread and fish were multiplied. And um, so clearly he's demonstrating his rule over nature and, and these various other things. Now the Jews were hoping that the Messiah would overthrow their enemies, the Romans. They were under Roman occupation in Israel. The Romans were one of the kingdoms of this world which sets itself up in opposition to God as was prophesied in the book of Daniel as we saw last week. Those kingdoms that that statue represented and those monsters in the sea represented. But he redefined who the enemy was. The various kingdoms of this world which oppose God are actually headed up by Satan, by God's enemy, a fallen angel. And those kingdoms are actually an expression of his kingdom, of Satan's kingdom. When they oppose God, they're an expression of the kingdom of darkness. In Acts, the book of Acts, we're told that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. Now, whether directly or indirectly, sickness is caused by the enemy. You know, God's nature is to heal. The enemy's nature is to make people sick. And so uh, he went around healing those who he found were sick. And there is this clash of two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness, which is the very limited rule of Satan, the limited influence of Satan and his demons and so on and then there is the awesomely powerful kingdom of God there's absolutely no contest between them it's not like a, a form of dualism where you know who's on the throne now is it God is it Satan I'm not quite sure my life's going wrong you know two more or less equal kingdoms fighting each other this is the kingdom of darkness almost totally insignificant compared to the awesome power and authority of the kingdom of God but nevertheless we are in this spiritual battle and, uh, you know, demons, when they met Jesus, they just took off screaming instantly. Sickness was replaced by healing. The storm, which threatened to drown Jesus and his disciples, was stilled simply at a command. And John, in his first letter, tells us that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And whenever he bumped into the expressions of the kingdom of darkness, he demonstrated God's rule over them. And so in the words Jesus spoke, and the words that he did, we see the demonstration of the powers of the future age breaking into the present. 
Now, as I say, theologians have used various words to try and describe this complexity of the kingdom being now and being near and being delayed and being future. And um, the book that John Wimber was very influenced by, he leads or led until he went to be with the Lord, the International Vineyard Movement, and uh, was really the pioneer of our thinking in the vineyard, was this book that he was very influenced by George Eldon Ladd. It's called The Presence of the Future. And if you want an even harder book to read, and a more in-depth book, then that would be the one I'd recommend. The Presence of the Future, which just in, it, in that phrase captures what we're talking about. The future has broken in, it has become present in the ministry of Jesus. And indeed, subsequently, right now, it's still present. Another phrase is the already and the not yet. The kingdom has come already, but it has not yet fully come. So if you ask the question, is the kingdom of God here already? The answer is, of course, yes. And if you ask ask the question, is the kingdom of God not yet here? The answer is yes. And we live in this mysterious dimension where we experience both the already and the not yet simultaneously. The kingdom of God is here, but it is not fully here. Another phrase which you can impress your friends with over dinner is this, if you can learn it, inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the final events of history. And inaugurated is what happens to American presidents at their inauguration. And it's an occasion when someone like Obama begins his role in office. And so inaugurated eschatology means that the final events of history have begun now. They've begun in Jesus. The powers and events of the end of the world are already being rolled out and already manifested. Another phrase is that we now live between the times. Between the time when the kingdom of God is inaugurated or begins in Jesus and then the time when the kingdom will be fully consummated, will come in its fullness and will be fully realized. Between the coming of Jesus and the end of history, we are in what is called the last days. And from the moment of Christ's ascension to his return, this whole period is one period. There are no dispensations within it. It's basically one period, and they are called the last days. So we're in the last days, and we're nearer the last of the last days than they were back in the times of the disciples. And who knows, if the Lord doesn't return for another hundred years, they'll be nearer the last days. They'll be nearer the last of the last. But basically, it's one period of time, the last days. Between the coming of Jesus and the end of history... We live in a spiritual battle. The kingdom of darkness, though struck a fatal blow, nevertheless continues to have expression. And we're all very aware of that. We live in a messed up world where that expression of horrible things happens. And at the same time, the kingdom of God has broken in and wonderful things are happening as God's nature is expressed. And in this time, we experience what is called eschatological tension. Eschatological tension, I think, really is a phrase which sums up the whole thing we're talking about, about this kind of life we live. And it's just the way my strange mind works. But when I think of that phrase, it's always conjured up for me the picture of a man going to see the doctor because he just feels all out of sorts. Just everything's wrong. It's just, ah, what's going on? So he goes to see the doctor and he gets home and his wife calls out and said, Did you go, darling? And what did the doctor say? And he says, Well, the doctor said, I'm suffering from a condition called eschatological tension Ooh, she says that sounds uncomfortable it is he says you see there is sickness and there is healing and there's love and there's hatred and there's 
beauty and there's violence and there's joy and there's grief. The present age hasn't yet finished and the future age hasn't yet fully begun. And the whole of our Christian experience is found in the overlap between these two ages. We live between the times. Now we don't have time to expand into other New Testament passages which express and interpret this mysterious teaching of Jesus, but if you one day do the Vineyard Bible Institute module uh, that I'm summarizing here, you'll see that Jesus and Paul and the writer of Hebrews, among others, expand on what we've said tonight. So we've said that inaugurated eschatology means that the final events of history have begun in Jesus. The powers and the events of the end of the world are already happening in him, in his ministry, as we've just looked at, and then in the three major events which follow that. When we look at the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the day of Pentecost, we find that all of them are articulated in the New Testament as eschatological or in eschatological terms. In other words, they are end-of-the-world events occurring ahead of time in Jesus. They are future events which have broken into the present. And uh, in Jesus, the powers of the coming age have broken in. And the first of these we're going to look at is the cross. About a month ago, Palm Sunday, I was talking about Jesus and his hour and his time as he headed towards the cross. And then in John 12, 31, he says this, now is the time for the judgment of this world. Meaning now in this moment on the cross, it is going to be judgment day. And he then says, now the prince of this world will be driven out. In other words, Satan's kingdom is about to be crushed by what's about to happen. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he's drawing on the idea that in him a new humanity is found. Those who come to Christ and are then found in Christ in some way share that experience that he goes through of this day of judgment happening on the cross. And then as he hangs on the cross, his final cry, it is finished, which is not a cry of defeat, it's a cry of triumph. I did what the, you know, the eternal plan was, it's done, is actually the end the root word is actually it is the end and Derek who's a very experienced theologian probably the the most um, learned theologian in the vineyard movement he says this Jesus is actually saying this is the end of history and Jesus never simply said things without demonstrating them at that moment as he cried out it is finished as he died on the cross all creation bore witness there was an eclipse of the sun there was an earthquake And in scripture, these are always the labor pains of the end of the age, the end of history, this final apocalyptic moment. And uh, Jesus is hanging on the cross saying, this is the day of judgment. And all creation is going through the labor pains of the end of history, breaking into the present. I love the way Tom Wright put it in a talk that I listened to this week. Jesus took the weight of the world's evil on himself and exhausted it. And then in Matthew's gospel, he recalls all these people who had long been dead. This earthquake happened, tombs were broken open, and they just jumping up out of their graves and walking around having a chat and a coffee with people in Jerusalem. An astonishing thing, things that can only happen at the end of history suddenly begin to happen in Jesus. And that is our understanding, the basis of our understanding of the atonement, being at one with God. Because in the cross, God has executed the day of judgment already in the case of Jesus. And if your destiny and mine is tied up in Jesus, 
in the day of judgment that has occurred on the cross, then as Jesus said, you have already passed from death to life and you will not enter into future judgment. But for those who have chosen not to be drawn into Jesus, who have rejected Christ and find their destiny is not in him, that day of judgment will occur. They will surely face that that judgment at the end. And so for those of us who have committed lives to Jesus, we can say, my case is closed. I have been tried. I have been found guilty. I have been executed in Christ for that. And I can never be judged again for because, uh, because in me, a future event is a present event or indeed a past event now. What a relief. This is a whole basis for justification by faith that God can declare over us forever the verdict, not guilty. Because on the cross, In the cross of Jesus for us, the day of judgment is already over and we can say with certainty, my sins are forgiven. I am free from guilt forever. Let's take a look at the resurrection. Probably the best story which gives us a glimpse of the eschatological implications of Jesus' resurrection is the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. And she answered this, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. What she was saying there was basically the Jewish belief of the day, that there would be a universal resurrection of all who believe would happen on that last day, and we know that Lazarus will indeed be raised along with the rest of us, she's saying. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he demonstrates that he is the resurrection by raising Lazarus from the dead. And so what is expected at the end of history is suddenly present. Now, he didn't actually raise Lazarus, he didn't resurrect Lazarus to a resurrection body, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. He raised him, he resuscitated him back to life, and of course he lived for a period of time, and then he would have died as any mortal did. Uh, It's very fascinating. I was just reading Gospels uh, recently and noticed that the Pharisees were really upset with Jesus raising a guy who's been dead a few days. So they plotted to kill him. They weren't just plotting to kill Jesus. They were plotting to kill Lazarus, to wipe that away because that's terribly embarrassing when you're trying to prove someone is not the son of God that they're raising people who've been dead for a period of time. Uh, But uh, fascinating a little bit. If you care to read for yourself Paul's understanding of Jesus' resurrection, you'll find in 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter is working out the implications of the resurrection of Jesus as an end of the world event. His treatment there is this, what will occur at the end of history, the resurrection of all God's people has occurred in advance as the first fruits of a future harvest in the singular person of Jesus. In the days of the first century, there was actually never an expectation of a singular resurrection of the dead. Not even, they didn't expect the Messiah to raise from the dead. The only expectation was that at the end of history, God would resurrect all the dead, and uh, some to judgment, some to life, and they were waiting for that day. What Paul is telling us is that something unexpected, something unprecedented happened, that that end of the world event had suddenly appeared in the present in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And therefore, Paul says, he is the prototype of what our future resurrection is going to look like. In his letter to the Philippians, chapter three, he writes this, he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And it's a fascinating study to do sometime to look at the narratives and the properties of the way they describe Jesus and this resurrection body. 
and to understand that our bodies will one day be transformed to be just like the risen body of Jesus. The gospel accounts tell us, for instance, that he could appear and disappear in rooms that had locked doors. He was suddenly there having a chat and then he was gone. And yet he wasn't some sort of spirit or ghost, which you know some people thought he was, and you would probably think if you met someone who had already died that they probably were a ghost, especially if they were talking with 500 of you over a period of a number of weeks, you would think, how can this possibly be true? But Jesus goes out of his way to show them that he is physically present. And in Luke 24, it recounts this story. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. I'm a physical body present with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet with, of course, the wounds on them. And while they still did not believe because didn't believe it because of joy and amazement. He asked them, like, you guys aren't getting this, are you? You've already just touched me, and I am real. But he's, he says this. He asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He's eating barbecued fish to show them that he is physically present. Thomas is invited to put his finger into Christ's wounds to check that he is real. He's absolutely tangible, And yet he has a body that is no longer confined in the way that our bodies are, by time and space. Tom Wright says it is a transphysical reality. It's a physical body, all right, but it transcends the confines of time and space of the bodies that we have right now. And so the resurrection of Jesus is an end of the world event occurring ahead of time as the first fruits of what will happen to us. And lastly, we can look at the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is clearly articulated in the scriptures as an end of the world event. The followers of Jesus, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, the power of the Spirit is on them. They begin to speak in different kinds of languages and they appear to be drunk. Some of the crowd dismiss them as these guys are drunk. And, uh, and yet they were between them speaking in probably a dozen languages of all these various peoples fluently and learnedly. Now when you see a bunch of people standing up and speaking in fluent other languages, you wouldn't accuse them of being drunk. You'd accuse them of being highly educated or something else. Why did they say these men are drunk? Could it be that they were behaving drunk? Could it be that when the power of the Spirit came upon them, they did things like drunk people do? Like maybe they could hardly stand up as they were speaking. Maybe they were, I don't know... Um, laughing or, or in some way exposing, just looking like a bunch, bunch of drunkards and yet preaching the gospel in different languages at the same time. And when that accusation comes, these men are just drunk, Peter gets up and says, no, it's too early in the morning for that. And he explains by quoting a passage from the Old Testament which says this, in the last days, remember we're in those days now, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And if you read on in Joel, it talks about the cosmic events that are the labor pains of history, the blotting out of the sun, the moon turning to blood, the great and terrible day of the Lord, which means the end of history. And and the Israelites would have thought in the last days, right at the end there of history, this incredible outpouring is going to happen. And he says, it's happening now. Joel's prophecy was part of that expectation that 
at the end of history, there will be this massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the harvesting of humanity for the end. And Peter is saying this, this Pentecostal phenomena you are seeing is that that end of the world work of the Holy Spirit that is part of the resurrection of all things is occurring in advance. It's actually happening now. And so that is why when people experience the power of the Holy Spirit, what is called by some as a Pentecostal moment, where they are touched powerfully by the Spirit of God, there are sometimes physical signs of that fact. If we go back 28 years to 1982, uh, I was in a meeting, the first ever vineyard meeting I'd ever been in with Debbie, and John Wimber was there speaking, and he just invited the Spirit of God to come. And I just stood up. Now, as far as I'm aware, I had never heard about anybody shaking. Many of you will have seen it. It's happened in our meetings at various points and so on. But I'd never heard about it. I'd certainly never seen anybody shake. But as I stood up, I just kind of raised my you know, hands to the Lord like this. And suddenly, this power went through my body that caused all my major muscles to bounce up and down. And uh, Debbie was sitting next to me. She'd never seen anything like it either. Her non-Christian bridesmaid was sitting next to her, wide-eyed, as you can imagine. Uh, she actually came to faith in the following weeks. But I'm, I'm just, I mean, I don't do this sort of thing. I'm, those of you who know me, I'm fairly level. I don't go for exotic things. I'm not very emotional and so on. But suddenly, I'm having this incredibly physical experience of just absolutely being shaken out of my shoes. And that went on for a period of time as people prayed for me. It wasn't auto-suggestion. I was the first person, the first person I ever saw shake was myself. And uh, it was actually a profound moment in my life. It felt like the Lord of heaven was just from heaven putting his finger on my head and saying, you're called. And actually my calling to pastoral ministry and everything really turned around at that point. Paul explains that the experience we have of the Spirit is the foretaste or the down payment of our future inheritance. In Ephesians, he uses the phrase, the deposit and in Romans 8, he talks about how the work of the Spirit within us now is the first fruit of the redemption of our bodies. And this is the basis of our understanding of phenomena of the Holy Spirit. Like that was a phenomena, that something happened. It was my body, it was a, the long word is a phenomenological response to the power of the Spirit. You say, is that God? No, that's not God, that's John shaking. And I'll explain why in a minute. Now, many of you who have been Christians for forever will recall, if you think back to the years 1994, 95, 96, that there was a move of God which was commonly dubbed and called the Toronto Blessing. How many of you are familiar with that? Just raise a hand if you're familiar. Okay, so many of you are. And uh, it had such an impact. It was impacting churches and uh, out in the wider community a bit as well. Such an impact that articles about what was happening appeared in national newspapers. It was fairly big news for a while. And some amazing things had started to happen at the Toronto Vineyard in Canada. People from around the world got on airplanes and went to visit that. And a move of the Spirit spread across much of the Western world. Some of you will have been in churches where you heard a tape by Eleanor Mumford. Uh, others of you will have heard of that tape. How many, just out of interest, I won't be that many, but how many of you actually heard or you heard of that tape? Just a few. Well, uh, she gave a talk at Holy Trinity in Brompton in London, and uh, that tape was played in numerous countries and in all manner of denominations within just a few weeks of that occasion of her speaking there. Now, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, called the Toronto Blessing, in the UK, as far as we know, actually happened, it, it happened to start in our house. 
And uh, what had happened is this, that John Mumford had recently been to a US board meeting of the vineyard. At that meeting, there were a couple of the leaders there who had been to Canada, experienced this, and they came to the board meeting just to talk about what they had seen. And as much as they could, they could hardly speak, and they kept ending up on the floor and, and doing all sorts of strange things. And anyway, they talked about these phenomena and this outpouring of the Spirit. So John came back from that meeting, and there was a leaders' meeting on the Monday, and our home had the biggest room in the church. It happened to be a council house that had been extended front and back and all the walls taken out. Just one in the middle holding it up. But basically, it was a bigger open plan room. So we're in this meeting, 30, 35 leaders in that room. And John just told us about what had happened. And then he didn't kind of hype it up or have us all stand and do anything and play music or anything like that. He just, just where we were sitting, he just said, let's see if the Lord wants to do anything tonight. We didn't wait more than a few seconds before a sound, bang, 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 began. And what it was, was somebody who was seated under our stairs. You know where the understairs cupboard would normally be? That We had chairs right into there. And suddenly this young man was behaving somewhat like a pogo stick seated. Uh, it's not even physically possible to do that, I'm sure. But he bang, 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 banging his head on the understairs, uh, on the side of the stairs. That was the beginning. Then he suddenly fell on the floor and rolled all the way across the carpet and rolled all the way back and then all this way, like, a bit like a flopping fish. And that was the first of just many people in the room experiencing a powerful visitation of the Holy Spirit and all manner of things went on. And that meeting then went on till after midnight. The, uh, our next door neighbor, we were in a terraced house and our next door neighbor was an elderly lady and she sat up till after midnight quite scared because uh, either something very weird was happening in our house or we were doing a clog dancing class. That was what she volunteered, thought you were dancing with clogs, bang, 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 noises and all sorts of things going on. I personally found um, that as the Spirit of God touched me that night, I simply laughed. And uh, it wasn't that I found what was going on particularly amusing. It was amazing, but it wasn't that amusing. But uh, simply my diaphragm kept hopping up and down like that, like laughing, and it just simply came out that way. So, and it was kind of joy and all this sort of thing. It's a wonderful experience. Somebody phoned us because people that night had to be driven home because they were drunk, completely drunk in the spirit. They couldn't be entrusted with a car. And uh, people, so this person phoned and said, we hear drunk people have left your, been leaving your house. Is this anything, could this be anything to do with what is happening in Canada? And in fact, of course it was. And during the course of that meeting, uh, we just felt someone needs to go to Canada and see what's going on. And I seem to recall just writing down, I just thought Eleanor should go. And I wrote this little note to John, just said Eleanor should go and gave it to him. And as the four of us, even while the meeting continued, discussed what we would do, uh, we decided Eleanor would go to Canada, check it out. And of course she came back. She came back to England and we had a staff meeting uh, at which she told us about it. And we thought, because Holy Trinity Brompton had expressed an interest, their staff came over and joined our staff. So she just kind of talked a little bit about it. And suddenly, pandemonium, the Spirit of God, just landed on that room. 572 Kingston Road, I seem to remember the office was. And um, bodies were strewn all over the place. And all sorts of strange things, strange phenomena were occurring. And uh, I had to actually take someone's mobile their mobile phone, and call somebody to explain why this nationally known person, who was due to be somewhere very important, in fact was due to be in the House of Commons, couldn't be there and actually couldn't come to the phone. 
And uh, the reason was he was completely laid out on the floor, actually stopping the door being opened because his body was in the way and uh, just completely, I forget, giggling and completely overcome by the power of the Spirit. Um, so anyway, that was a great time on the Monday. On the Sunday, then I went to preach at two churches and I had another sermon prepared. I just said five minutes at the end and things broke out in those two churches. Eleanor, meanwhile, was at Holy Trinity Brompton speaking the whole sermon on it. They recorded that and then that tape went right across. I spoke to someone in the Catholic Church who within two weeks, it was right across much of, I forget, I don't want to exaggerate, but certainly UK and possibly parts of Europe. There is no doubt that that two a year, two or three year phenomenon that some people called it a revival, I don't think I would use that term, but it was certainly an outpouring, it was certainly a time of refreshing. I believe it was a genuine move of God. One issue though, which was a concern, was to do with the teaching that began to happen on some of the phenomena which were happening at the time. John Wimber, the leader of the Vineyard Movement, was saying it is a mistake to try and theologize particular strange and exotic experiences. So somebody might have made a noise like they roared. So people were scurrying through the Bible to find out anybody who might have made a sound like a lion or something, or people behave like chickens. I mean, all sorts of things were, people were uh, you know, just doing strange things, honestly. If you weren't there, one day in your life, you may get to see phenomena like it, but it was uh, amazing things were happening, but people were scurrying through the Bible to try and teach on behaving like chickens or clucking or making farmyard animals noises. And uh, people, of course, were laughing and they were looking at teaching, oh, this is what this must mean. And that completely misses the point. The fact is that these phenomena, these phenomena when the Holy Spirit moves, they tell us one thing. What they're showing us is that these mortal bodies we have now cannot cope with the power that our future resurrected bodies one day will be able to cope with. And so what happens is that when a little bit of the power which will one day resurrect and immortalize our bodies, when it breaks into the present, it causes a system overload. It's like taking this little battery pack thing I've got with this microphone. It runs on one and a half volt batteries. If I plug that into the mains, you know, directly, it would, it would certainly do something unusual. It would probably make a strange noise before, you know, keeling over. Or imagine the Duracell bunny plugged into the mains would run at about 100 miles an hour for about three seconds and then keel over because it's not able to take the power that is flowing through it. And Paul says these mortal bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. They just can't take that power. So what we saw in the Toronto Blessing was a lot of people being touched by the Holy Spirit and experiencing a system overload. Like with any massive stimulus, such as extreme fear, that's a system overload. It can cause you to shake and do all sorts of things. Or a huge dose of alcohol. Our bodies will do things like shake and fall over and make weird noises or laugh uncontrollably. It's a system overload. And the phenomena are not the important thing. They're just simply different ways of, of uh, people responding. You know, you say, that's weird. Is that God? No, that's not God. That's the power of his spirit breaking into this meeting or into this place and somebody's body responding uh, in the way that that person's body happens to respond. Some people felt very little and did very little, and that's the way their bodies happen to respond. So we shouldn't focus on these phenomena, phenomenological responses, nor should we be, on the other hand, embarrassed by them as though they're not supposed to happen in church. It may look strange, it may be somewhat embarrassing, but to shun them 
were the Lord to ever visit and do that sort of thing again, to shun them would be like being embarrassed about healing. Healing is also the down payment of the future resurrection of the dead. And if we see it in the kingdom of God context, then we will have a more measured approach. In times and seasons of outpouring, then we will both welcome the activity of the Spirit and the phenomena which accompanies that, but we won't be preoccupied, we won't become enamored by those actual phenomena. It's important to realize that when we have experiences of the Holy Spirit that affect our body, that it's a little down payment of the future. What will happen when our bodies are resurrected will be a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but God will turn up the dial. And using an electrical metaphor, of course, has its limitations, but let's just say that the greatest outpourings of the Spirit at the points of, in history of greatest revivals, and including this one I referred to, if that's a bit like 12 volts, it's like God will suddenly turn it all up to 1,000 volts. And every cell, every molecule in our body will be instantly transformed. And then we will have bodies just like the risen body of Jesus. And remember when that happens, remember this talk and try a wall. Just keep walking through the wall. And then the other side have some fish, barbecue some fish, whatever. This may seem somewhat incredible. There may be some of you sitting here thinking, I've just visited tonight, I have no idea what that guy's talking about. He's a bit mad <laughs> and he's speaking from a brown book which um, if it's, that stuff's in there then this is a bit crazy. But this is not science fiction. This is actually based upon historical factual evidence about the risen body of Jesus. So all of these great moments in the life of Jesus, including his birth, which I've not talked about, but his ministry and then particularly his crucifixion, his resurrection, and the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost are all, in New Testament terms, the future world breaking into the present. We are now partaking of the powers of the coming age. And once we grasp that, it really does change everything in the Christian life, the way we view our Christian walk. It's a bit like an operating system on a computer, whether that's Windows XP or Leopard or some other thing that I, I don't know on your computer, if your operating system doesn't work, the platform on which everything sits doesn't work, you will know to your dismay that nothing else works. Word and Excel and all the other programs won't function because it's the basis on which everything else is built. And so it is with this kingdom of God theology, which is the main teaching of Jesus. All the aspects of the Christian life need to be understood in that context. Now, as I conclude, I just want to briefly look at one of the applications of our understanding that we are living in the now and the not yet of the kingdom. This is the context into which we are to understand healing. When we pray for people and they get healed, um, you know, why does that happen? Well, the reason is because the kingdom of God has come. You know, the kingdom of God is already here. This is the expression of God's nature. I am the Lord who heals you. Here it is. Boom. Healing has happened. So, well, how come some are not healed then? Well, because the kingdom of God has not fully come. The expression of the kingdom in healing is the power of the future age breaking in now and expressing God's nature. People get healed when other Christians lay hands on them and minister healing, sometimes incredibly healed in a way which the medics have no possible way of explaining. And some people don't get healed. And uh, is it a question of, well, God prefers this person or not this? And it's really rough when someone gets healed of cancer, sorry, is dying of cancer while someone else's little toe gets healed. 
Like, what is this? This is unfair. If I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. I mean, if the power of God in, the, in breaking of the kingdom is here, why don't we just swap that around? You can put up with that flipping toe for the rest of your life that this person is dying. And uh, the problem is when we try and tell God what to do, it's just as well we don't run the universe because imagine we're little people in a little country on a little planet in the middle of a huge universe that he created. And we sometimes presume that our little tiny minds can comprehend his mind. His ways are higher than ours, his thoughts beyond ours. And uh, he knows what he's doing, but it's a mystery. And in the Christian life, we have to live with mystery. So it's not a question of preferring one person over another, because uh, as in my own experience, it happens in the same person. I was once healed of confirmed pneumonia. I had a doctor diagnose it. I went to the hospital to be x-rayed. I was confirmed there, and they were saying I needed to be signed off work for a few weeks. I was prayed for. The following day, I was going to center parks. I was basically healed, and I went swimming the next day and the whole of the week, completely symptom-free. An incredible thing happened. I've also been prayed for numerous times over the past eight or so years for a skin condition where my immune system dumps loads of histamine into my body. And it causes lumps and bumps, uh, which would be quite a pain had I not taken over that period of time nearly 20,000 pills. So that suppresses the symptoms sufficiently not for it to be a problem. But why have I not been healed? I've been prayed for by some of the most famous names in the Christian world. Makes no difference. I didn't didn't get better. And so it's a mystery. It's simply a mystery. The best way to understand it is the mystery of the kingdom. And if we try to reduce healing to any sort of formula where if we have enough faith or if we've repented enough or if we pray right that it's supposed to always happen, we will end up in a mess. You know, because we believe, well, because Christ has done, this healing belongs to me and if I just claim it and if I just believe for it and, uh, you know, we do that without understanding the nature of the kingdom and then our loved one dies then we may find ourselves agonizing with guilt that we, what did we not do? We didn't pray hard enough or properly or we, perhaps there was sin in the person's life or sin in our life that was holding it up or we just didn't have enough faith. I know of friends, sadly, who have not prepared their loved one for death as they died of a fatal disease because to even talk about the possibility that they weren't gonna get healed was believed to be a betrayal of faith. They had to stay positive and claim it in the present you know and believe for it one church leader was distraught many years ago as he told me about his experience he led a small church and a woman in the church had been dying of cancer and they had fasted as a church for her healing they had had prayer meetings in her absence they had laid hands on her in her presence but she deteriorated and it was evident that unless Lord intervened at you know, a late point she was going to die soon and towards the end as the pastor He wanted to talk to the family about ensuring her affairs were in order, ensuring, you know, saying goodbye to her children if she didn't get healed. We'll still continue to pray that you will be healed, but we realize that it's possible. The kingdom is not fully here and fully expressed. And because many in the church, this church that he had inherited, held to this name it, claim it, believe for it kind of teaching, when she died, they blamed him for what they saw as sowing lack of faith into the church, effectively accused him of being responsible for her death. And of course, when he talked to me, he was just distraught because his church, part of them, were accusing him of killing someone, a a member of the church. And in fact, the church split over that uh, traumatic issue. The teaching that those folk were being influenced by 
was one of an over-realized eschatology that says the kingdom of God is here. It is here now. The future is now in the present fully and uh, if we would just get the right formula, we can reach for it and we can just you know, have all the blessings of the full expression of the kingdom. Whereas we live, as we've just been talking about, we believe in inaugurated eschatology where the kingdom is here but it is not fully here. It has broken in to this present age. It continues to break in, but it will not come in its fullness until the consummation of history. And at that time, God's will will be done in its fullness. There will be no more pain, no more sickness, no more tears. There will be no more death. But that day is not yet. And uh, sometimes it breaks into the present in a given situation, and sometimes apparently it doesn't. And so we live between the times, the already and the not yet. And as I said earlier, we live in a state of eschatological tension. It is uncomfortable. Sometimes it's desperately uncomfortable. And we just don't have all the answers. We live in this mystery. And I think we have to stay there and recognize there is a mystery about it. We pray for healing with great expectation that God's kingdom will break in as we pray. We know that the kingdom of God is already It's now, it's here, and we're pressing into that. And at the same time, we realize that the kingdom of God is not yet. The kingdom of darkness has significant influence in this world. We're in a spiritual war, and we don't win every one of the battles. Friends of mine who are excited about healing and are embracing the teaching of some increasingly popular teachers who have a leaning towards an over-realized eschatology, that it's available, it's all available to us if we will believe for it. So from God's perspective, from his end, it's all available. We just need to work out how to access that. Um, Some of those people who are getting excited about these popular teachers who are teaching these various things have expressed concern to me that this now and not yet approach to the kingdom understanding the kingdom can lead if we're not careful to us to a resignation to not seeing much healing actually to a low expectation that God will heal in a given situation because if you have the options of in the spectrum the already and the not yet well maybe this is just the not yet and so we we're less you know going for it as we pray for people and the truth is I think they may well have a point okay many of them are seeing God heal Uh, probably more often than we are, not, I think, because of their theology, but because they are really focused on healing and expectant for it and they're praying for a lot of people and so on. Uh, If we find ourselves becoming unexpectant and slipping into the not yet of the kingdom, we need to wake up to the now because the kingdom breaks in now. It is already unleashed and let's go for it with all the expectation that we can. Our understanding of the kingdom should not make us complacent, but expectant of the future, the powers of the future age can break in at any moment, at any situation. The veil between now and the future is very thin, and the inbreaking can just happen. And in that moment of happening, anything can happen. Anyone might get healed, someone might get raised from the dead. It's happening across the world. It doesn't happen so often in the Western world, but the kingdom of God can suddenly break in. And so we should... Be expectant as we minister those to those who are sick. Next time I speak, uh, in two or three weeks' time, things get fascinating as we see some of the application of the kingdom teaching then to our own personal lives. As we realize, it's not just the macro picture. Actually, we realize we are already and not yet people. 
So come back then if you'd like to hear the next instalment. <laughs>